For more than 40 years, Dr. David Jeremiah has faithfully preached God's Word. And as the world changes, how the message is delivered expands. Turning Point Plus was created as the next step in our digital broadcast ministry. And it's available instantly when you sign up to support Turning Point with an automatic monthly gift of any amount. Learn more and access more than 12,000 audio and video messages at turningpointplus.org. You can actually become a better friend by studying other friendships, which may be why Paul included some of his at the end of Colossians. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah considers the lessons to be learned from each of Paul's friendships found in the closing verses of his epistle. From his series, Christ Above All, here's David to introduce today's message, Paul and His Friends. You know, I love the Bible, and uh, I love even the places that some people uh, jump over because I know there's not anything in the Bible that's not meaningful. And one of the things I've always been intrigued about, Paul, is this. He was one of the busiest people who ever walked on this earth. When you read what he did every day and how he lived his life, all of his travel, most of which was on foot, and yet he accomplished so much. And here's what amazes me. In the midst of that busyness, he never lost sight of his friends. He knew so many people by name. When you get to the end of Romans, for instance, or Philippians, and here in Colossians, you see the list of people that Paul cares about, people who are with him and people to whom he is writing his epistle. He has something to say about every one of them. He knew them well. He spent time with them. He prayed for them. And uh, his relationships with people is a theology in itself. So we'll study that today and tomorrow as we close our study on the book of Colossians this week. You can still get the book, and it's yours for the asking. When you send your gift today, simply say, send me the book, Christ Above All. It's 288 pages, a hardback book that we wrote. Then we preach the sermons that come from that book that are based on Colossians, uh, the book in the New Testament. Now we have the sermons, and we also have this commentary. It's brand new, right off the press, beautifully designed. And we want you to have this because this will memorialize everything we've been talking about and give you illustrations to use when you have to give a talk. All of them are written down. They're inscribed in this book, and you can find where they came from. At the end of the book, there is a reader's guide, which we don't usually do, but this reader's guide is for personal reflection and for group study. And you can use it uh, just for your own purpose, or you can use it if you're leading a group study. And you can study your way through the book of Colossians. Here's how I would do that. I would get a copy of the book for myself if I'm the facilitator. Then I'd get study guides for everybody in the group. I might also get the DVD or uh, CD package so I could listen to it. Then I'd go into that study every week, and I wouldn't have to have all the answers, but I could guide the discussion. People would be studying their study guide and, most of all, reading the book of Colossians, and it's a delightful experience. And it's filled with the promises that God gives us that his word will never return unto him void. I recommend it, and I encourage it. hope you'll do it. Well, here we go. This is part one of Paul and his friends. The story is told that George Bernard Shaw sent Winston Churchill a couple of tickets for the opening night of one of his plays. 
Shaw enclosed a little note with the tickets, and here's what the note said. Here are two tickets for the opening of my new play. Keep one for yourself and bring along a friend if you can find one. (laughs) Not to be outdone, Churchill returned the tickets with a nice little note, too. I am sorry that a previous engagement precludes my attending your opening night. I shall be happy to come the second night, if there is one. Don't you wish you could be that quick when somebody says something mean to you, you could come back with something like that? Friendship is really something that the Bible says a lot about, not all in one place, but scattered throughout all the Scripture. If you want to know about friendship, you should study the life of Paul. Paul was not just a soul winner. He was also a great friend maker. Did you know that there are more than 100 different Christians, named and unnamed, associated with Paul in the book of Acts and in the letters that he wrote? And in Romans chapter 16 alone, he named 26 different friends. For Paul, friendship was an essential part of the Christian life. And he was a people person. I think that's one of the reasons he lasted for so long doing what he did. In the final verses of this letter to the Colossians, Paul sends his greetings and gives us a glimpse into the friends who encouraged him in his ministry. These are ordinary people like you and me, people whom God used to spread the gospel around the world. But let me tell you something I know. Without these friends, Paul would not have been able to carry out the ministry that God gave him. To Paul, these people were indispensable They made his ministry possible. Nobody can accomplish something great for God without the help of others. I know a lot of people act like it's all them and nobody else counts, but if you read the Bible and you read the history of Christian ministry, you'll discover that wherever there was greatness, there were a lot of people making it happen. Maybe one guy gets the credit for it, but he knows in his heart that it's not just him. We all need teammates to support us and encourage us and help us along the way. Read the Bible. Adam had Eve. Moses had Joshua and Aaron. David had Jonathan. Ruth had Naomi. Jesus had his 12 disciples in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. I could go on. The Bible says that iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Ladies and gentlemen, we were not meant to do this alone. We were meant to do it together. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. So if you study the book of Colossians and you come to the last chapter and you want to skip over the names, don't do that. In fact, as we go through this message, notice that all these people are actually mentioned in the Bible. Paul ends his letter by highlighting ten friends in his life who made his ministry possible. Without these 10 individuals, you and I wouldn't have the book of Colossians. We wouldn't have discovered this book, and we wouldn't have had access to the treasures of Christ. So let's go through these friends. Let's learn what we can learn about being a good friend. Let's also remember that friendship is a very diverse subject. All of these people are different, and they all brought something to the table. So here's the journey. First of all, there was a dependable friend. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4 says, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. 
I am sending him to you for this very purpose, Paul's writing to the Colossians, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. Paul describes Tychicus as a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. He was to update the Colossians about Paul's circumstances in Rome, and he was to comfort them. Most likely, Tychicus was the messenger who carried the letter from Paul's prison to the Colossians. He was a dependable friend, a friend that Paul believed in so much that he had him deliver this letter. And also, if you read the book of Ephesians in chapter 6 and verse 21, you'll discover he also delivered the letter to the Ephesians. And as Paul approached death, he sent Tychicus to take care of the church in Ephesus, 2 Timothy 4.12. So this was a pretty important friend that Paul had. And the Bible says accompanying him on the journey to Colossae was a new friend, verse 9. This man's name is Onesimus. Let me tell you about him. He was a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, Paul said, who will make known to you all things that are happening here. The story of Onesimus is quite interesting. In fact, it's the core value in the book of Philemon. Onesimus confuses a lot of people because the Bible says he was a slave. And please understand again that whenever the Bible speaks of slavery, it's not endorsing it, it's discussing it because that's the way it was. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. So to write to the church, which was made up perhaps even half of slaves and not mention slavery, would have been very unlikely. Interesting thing about Onesimus was that he had run away from his master. His master was a guy named Philemon. And he landed in Rome, and when he got to Rome, Paul won him to Christ. He became a Christian. In his letter to Philemon, Paul calls Onesimus, my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. So while he was a prisoner, Onesimus showed up, and Paul shared Christ with him, and he became a Christian. Now he's a new friend to Paul and had been a believer for only a short period of time, but Paul was already calling him a faithful brother and a beloved one. So what did Paul do after Onesimus became a Christian? You probably might think he put him in a safe place where his master couldn't find him. But no, Paul sent him back to his master. And even when he was under house arrest, he was making new friends because what you will discover is that Onesimus became very special to Paul. He was a runaway slave sent back to Philemon and I'm going to leave the mystery up to you. You want to find out what happened? Read the book of Philemon. It's a real short little book, and it's intriguing because it's the story. Nobody could make up this story. It's a Bible story that is filled with redemption. So you have a dependable friend and a new friend. In verse 10, you meet a loyal friend. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, Paul says. Aristarchus was a Macedonian from Thessalonica. We don't know very much about him. But from what we can learn, he was a good man to have around in a tight place. Here's what I learned about Aristarchus. He was there when the people of Ephesus rioted in the temple of Diana. And he was in the forefront that he was captured by the mob. Acts chapter 19. He was there when Paul set sail for Rome as a prisoner. Acts 27. And it well may be that he actually enrolled himself as Paul's slave in order that he could be allowed to make the journey with him. 
Now here he is in Rome, and he's Paul's fellow prisoner. He's been arrested, and he's with Paul as a prisoner. And Aristarchus was a man who was always on hand when things were at their grimmest. Whenever Paul was in trouble, Aristarchus was there. Aristarchus reminds me of the story about a guy who was walking down the street one day when he fell in a hole. And the walls are so steep that he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, Hey, can you help me? The doctor writes a prescription and throws it down in the hole. And then he walks on. Then a priest comes along and the guy shouts, Father, I'm down in this hole. Can you help me out? And the priest writes a prayer and throws it down into the hole and moves on. And then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. And our guy says, are you stupid? Now we're both in the hole. And the friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. (laughs) That's what a friend does. A friend jumps into the hole with you, doesn't he? That's what the Bible tells us Aristarchus was all about. And then there's a reconciled friend in verse 10. Let's notice him. With Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, this is really an intriguing part of this story. Because on his first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas had taken Mark, this guy that's in the text here, took Mark with them to be their secretary. But in the middle of the journey, I don't really know what happened, but things got tough and difficult, and Mark quit and went home. And it was a long time before Paul could forgive him for that. You know, you don't want to be in the midst of trouble and have somebody you depend on quit on you, and that's what Mark did. He just quit. He couldn't take it. He went home. They were about to set out on the second missionary journey, and Barnabas wanted to make it possible for Mark to go with them, and Paul refused to take the quitter. He wouldn't take him. And on this issue, he and Barnabas had a big fight, and they never worked together again, as far as we know from the New Testament. Tradition says that Mark went as a missionary to Egypt and founded the church in Alexandria. What happened in the interim, we do not know, but we do know that he was with Paul in his last imprisonment. And Paul had once again come to look on Mark as a most useful man to have around. And Paul tells the church in Colossae, receive Mark and give him a welcome if he should come. You know what I think about when I read this? How unlike the way we treat people is the Bible. How many of you know somebody quits on you your tendency is to say, that's it, we're done forever. Don't show up around here again. You get into a spat with somebody who's been a friend of yours for a long time, and then you just never reconcile. For all of us who have failed in a ministry assignment at one time or another, John Mark is a model of encouragement. He didn't give up or pout. He got back on his feet, back into the ministry, showed himself to be a changed man, faithful to the Lord and to Paul. What a testimony he was. Just because you failed once doesn't make you a failure. There's a big difference between those two things. And then there's a quiet friend, verse 11. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision, and they have proved to be a comfort to me. We don't know anything much about this man, except he had an interesting name. His name was Justice, and his name was Jesus. Jesus would have been his Jewish name, Justice his Greek name. And to say he was a comfort to Paul means he brought relief and consolation to him. 
How many of you know we need friends like that when we're going through stuff? As I said, they jump in the hole with us. They put their arm around us. They don't leave us until we get to the other side. Mr. Sam Rayburn was Speaker of the United States House of Representatives longer than any other man in history. There's a story about him that reveals the kind of man that he really was. The teenage daughter of a friend of his died suddenly one night, and early the next morning the man heard a knock on his door. When he opened it, there was Mr. Rayburn standing outside. The speaker said, I just came by to see what I could do to help. The father replied in his deep grief, I don't think there's anything you can do, Mr. Speaker. We are making all the arrangements. Well, Mr. Rayburn said, have you had your coffee this morning? And the man replied that they hadn't taken time for breakfast. So Mr. Rayburn said that he could at least make coffee for them. While he was working in the kitchen, the man came in and said, Mr. Speaker, I thought you were supposed to have breakfast at the White House this morning. Well, I was, Mr. Rayburn said, but I called the president and told him I had a friend who was in trouble and I couldn't come. That's the type of friends that you want to have. Because one thing I know about all of us, we all face trouble, don't we? We all go through stuff, and it's a lot easier when you have a Mr. Rayburn around making coffee for you. And then there's a praying friend, and you know, I preached a little bit from Colossians many years ago, and I wrote a whole message on Epaphras. I love this guy because he's kind of the core of the book of Colossians. In verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4, we read these words, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Now listen carefully. We met Epaphras in the first chapter of Colossians. He was the person who founded the church in Colossae. And he's also the one who started churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis, just down the road from Colossae. And Paul called Epaphras a bondservant of Christ. You know, he only used that term for two people beside himself, and Epaphras was one of them. And in verses 12 and 13, Paul reveals that what Epaphras had been doing while visiting Paul in Rome was praying fervently and with great zeal. We don't know how long Epaphras stayed in Rome. Remember, he went to Rome because the church was facing all of this stress from all of these false teachers who were coming in. Epaphras was kind of the founder and pastor, and he didn't feel like he knew enough to deal with it. So he took off and he went to Rome to talk to Paul about it. And Paul couldn't come to Colossae because he was a prisoner. So he wrote this book that we've been studying. And the letter that he wrote to the Colossians was based on the conversation he had with Epaphras. That's all Paul ever knew about Colossae. He never went there. He never met any Colossians. But he knew about them because Epaphras came and was faithful to tell him all that was going on. But that's not what the Scripture wants us to remember about this man. He was a prayer warrior. The Bible says, first of all, he prayed faithfully. The word always is in verse 12. While he was away from his friends in Colossae, Epaphras did not fail to pray constantly for them and for Paul. In fact, in Colossians 4, 2, we are told, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Most interesting thing to me about the directives in the New Testament on prayer 
is not that we are told to pray, but that we are told to continue to pray. All of us pray, don't we? I mean, we pray when we're in trouble. We pray before we eat. We pray before we go to bed at night or whenever. But the Bible says we're to always be in a spirit, always to be in an atmosphere where we can pray. Don't let things creep into your life that make you really unwilling to pray or gets in the way of prayer. We're reminded in this regard of the story of Jacob because the Bible says that not only did Epaphras pray faithfully, he prayed fiercely. The Bible uses the word laboring. Have you ever thought about praying and laboring in the same breath? The Bible says that Epaphras labored when he prayed. It's a word that means to wrestle. It means to strive like Jacob wrestling with God in the Old Testament. Remember, he said, I'm not going to let go till you bless me. Have you ever wrestled in your prayer? Maybe you've got a child that's gone south instead of north. Maybe you've got situations at work that are just overwhelming. When things are really difficult, you don't just pray. You wrestle. You say to God, I don't know what to do. And if you don't help me, God, I'm not going to let you go until you tell me what to do. That's the way Epaphras prayed. And the Bible says he prayed fervently. In Greek, to stretch out, strain, or reach out to be fervent. Fervency is part of the New Testament. The Bible doesn't say we should live our lives easily. It says we should live our lives fervently. We should be excited about our faith. That's what you love about new Christians, isn't it? When they find out how much God has loved them and saved them from their sin, they're so excited, and they stay that way until we tamp them down as Christians. We get in their life and say, you got to just cool it, man. You're overwhelming us with your excitement. May their tribe increase. I love to be around new Christians. James 5:16 says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He prayed faithfully. He prayed fiercely. He prayed fervently. And here's the interesting thing. He prayed factually that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. The heretics in Colossae were infiltrating the church, and their ideologies were trying to knock the theological feet out from under the Christians there. And Epaphras knew the only way the church could survive this attack was if they could stand perfect and complete. So he prayed the right prayer, that they would be mature. You know, if you have a church, and it's filled with people who are rooted in the Word of God, and they know what the Bible says, they will spot error immediately. If you're in a church where there's no truth, where there's no Bible, where there's no stability, error can get in. And sometimes I watch churches across the country, and it just seems they go from one thing to the other. Someone once told me it's related to the last conference the pastor went to. He comes home with a new idea, and all of a sudden the church is here, and then it's all over the place. If you have the Bible as the core of your life, you will not be overwhelmed by false doctrine. And so Epaphus was praying that the church in Colossae would be filled with people who were mature in the faith. What a great prayer. And then Paul had a talented friend. He mentions this man in Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician. Luke was a respected and important man in the early church. He was a Gentile. He was a doctor, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. In fact, he is probably the only Gentile writer for any book of the Bible. Did you know the whole Bible was written by Jews except for Acts and Luke? If we go simply by word count, if you just count every word, Luke also wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer 
In verse 4, we learn that he was a physician and he was beloved by Paul. Medicine was important to the Greeks and physicians were held in high esteem in their culture. So here was Paul's personal physician and co-worker in ministry. Here are two of the most impressive individuals in the entire Bible, Paul and Luke and their buddies. You know, when I read uh, these things about these individuals, and you can do some ancillary studies on it, too. You can go back and read other things about them. It almost makes me feel like I'm back there with these guys, back there in that setting, back there in Colossae, back there trying to figure out what to do about the Gnostics who've come from Jerusalem to try to disrupt everything, back there in the jail cell with Paul telling him about what's happening in my church and asking him to do something about it. Well, he did something about it. It helped the Colossian church, and it's helped churches ever since, and it's helped us recently as we've studied this book together. What a great opportunity this has been for us. Tomorrow, part two of Paul and his friends, and the last lesson from the book of Colossians. As we bring this series to a close, let me remind you that the resources are a study guide for the book, which you can get from davidjeremiah.org, their CD package and a DVD package, and then there's this major book that we made available during the month for anyone who will send a gift of any size to Turning Point. When you send your gift, please say, send me the book on Colossians, and we'll do it. And we'll see you next time right here. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, Christ Above All, please visit our website, There you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine Turning Points and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. When you do, be sure to ask for your copy of David's new book, Christ Above All, a verse-by-verse study in Colossians to help you truly know who Jesus is. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James Versions, with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we conclude the series, Christ Above All, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Have you ever wondered what your legacy will be? The Jeremiah Legacy Society from Turning Point was created for friends of the ministry who feel called to partner with Dr. David Jeremiah to deliver the unchanging Word of God to future generations. We can ensure that the impact we have reaches beyond our days here on earth. Visit our website at davidjeremiahgift.org to learn more about how you can be a part of the Jeremiah Legacy Society. If you've enjoyed today's program with Dr. David Jeremiah, you might be interested in hearing it again at your convenience. Stay connected to Turning Point by visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca or by downloading our free Canadian mobile app. The app can be found by searching for Turning Point Canada on your smart device app store. Create an account and order digital resources from today's program with easy one-click checkout at davidjeremiah.ca. A king asked his wisest advisor, How can I be happy? And the wise man said, Find the happiest man in your kingdom and wear his shirt. 
So the king searched far and wide and found the happiest man in his kingdom. But there was a problem. The king told his advisor, I found the happiest man in my kingdom, but he doesn't even have a shirt. The simple message is obvious. Material things are not the source of joy or fulfillment in life. The Apostle Paul said it is possible to be content with just food and clothing, the very essentials by modern standards. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's alternative to materialism on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. Route 66, start your journey home today.